0: And now, with sound investing, here's Paul Merriman. A couple of years ago, I made a presentation at one of Tom Cox's retire meet get-togethers, and uh, it was great fun because what I did was compare what was available to investors when I came in the business back in the late uh, mid '60s, as as is how it is today, and it is truly amazing how. Wall Street oriented it was then. It was, it was all about how Wall Street was going to maximize their take compared to today. It's really a, a lot more, if not almost all, about how we as individual investors are going to maximize our return. I talked about how loads on mutual funds were 8.5% uh, that even included bond funds, by the way, and uh, and I noted that in the '70s there was an attempt to uh, uh, to actually put an eight and a half percent load on a money market fund. So uh, it was very uh, Wall Street centric in terms of where the profits were, and and trading individual stocks. hundred shares of IBM could. Uh, cost uh, $150 to $200 in commissions. And today, as, as you know, not only are load funds charging much less, but most mutual funds are purchased as no-load funds, and commissions for 100 shares of IBM uh, can be as low as uh, $4.95. In fact, there are places today where that is actually they're free. Well, recently and I by the way I, I I didn't see what more could be done to make this process better for investors I mean substantially better when a long Vanguard comes and makes uh, in the last week an announcement that they are going from under a hundred ETFs that can be traded commission free to about 1800. And I just think this is remarkable because uh, uh, it, it will make it possible now to, to do a lot more for investors who are uh, tied to or want to do business with Vanguard. And no, no sooner had that announcement come out but I, I must have had, uh, by the end of the day, a dozen emails from people asking me what I'm going to do about that and how that's going to change the way That uh, will be able to help investors who are working with Vanguard. And it is going to help because virtually all of the major ETFs will be available to buy and sell commission free through Vanguard. And the way that's going to impact our work with Vanguard is that today, when we put together an ETF portfolio at Vanguard, we are missing some major asset classes. I mean, some are a little far out, maybe, like small cap uh, emerging markets uh, or value emerging markets, uh, international small cap value, um, even international large cap value. We'll, well, now we'll have access to those asset classes. Uh, and be able to fill in anything that's missing in the Vanguard commission-free ETF portfolios. And it will also allow us, for those people who are using the mutual funds at, uh, at Vanguard, to use some ETFs, again, commission-free, to fill in some of the missing asset classes uh, within the Vanguard mutual fund Offerings. Plus, we're going to be able to create uh, a couple of additional portfolios at Vanguard. One will be an all value portfolio, and the second will be an all small cap value portfolio. So, uh, this is uh, an an important new service uh, coming from Vanguard, and it's, it's really pretty amazing because. I'm not going to dig too deep in the weeds here, but one of the things that is common is that if somebody like TD Ameritrade or maybe even Fidelity, if they have commission-free uh, relationships with other than Fidelity ETF providers, in most cases there is a, a, a an amount that is paid, a small percentage that is paid by the ETF management company back to Fidelity or TD Ameritrade now. It's a probably a pretty good profit center for them. But now Vanguard is literally giving up that extra uh, income that they can get from those ar- kind of arrangements, and that is more than likely going to lead to lower expenses, so about the time that the people, the professionals in the industry, thought it couldn't get any tougher to make money uh, in the brokers industry, uh, have just run into another brick wall, and uh, and I think this is this is a big one. This might uh, uh, cause a lot of investors move over to Vanguard because, as you know, ETFs have become a really important part of the industry. And give me a little time, because we're going to have to uh, uh, figure out, uh, make sure that we know exactly what ETFs that uh, Vanguard will be offering. And so far, I've not seen a list. It's my understanding this is all supposed to uh, be uh, distributed or, or, or available the uh, the 1st of August. I got a question uh, this last week uh, about how to figure out how much risk there is uh, in their portfolio, and in this particular case, uh, the, the, this lady had a uh, a joint holding of both Wellesley and Wellington at at Vanguard. and her question was with a uh, basically a split between those two funds, what would be the downside risk? How, how much of a loss should they uh, expect to? Uh, um, to have to take along the way. Well, it, it, it's not always this easy for me, but in this particular case, it's fairly easy because the Vanguard Wellesley and Wellington funds are both basically US oriented funds, basically large, well known companies. Uh, they're different, the difference between the two of them is that Wellesley uh, is 40% equity, 60% fixed income, and Wellington is 60% equity and uh, 40% fixed income, or bonds. And these two are, are huge funds that have been around. I think Wellington has been around since the 1920s, and Wellesley, I believe, started in the 1970s. So, they have a very long, conservative, productive, uh, long-term track record, uh, and um, and so how does one uh, figure out what kind of risk you're likely to uh, to have? Now, there actually was a, a market that that uh, um, would have given you some idea, and that is 2008. While it didn't represent. The worst 12 months that you probably uh, had with those two funds, Uh, Wellesley was down, I believe, 9%, uh, and uh, Wellington was down about 18%. So uh, they were both, because of the fixed income exposure, uh, down a lot less than the 37% loss of the the S&P 500. Now, I think if you really want to dig in and, and, and fine-tune uh, that prediction of how much exposure you have to the downside, you probably can use the fine-tuning table. In fact, if you go to paulmerriman.com and you click on Best Advice, and underneath Best Advice, there'll be a drop-down, and you'll see Fine-Tuning Tables. And then you open the fine-tuning tables and you will see uh, a table for the S&P 500 uh, and it says 2018. So those are the results, good times and bad, one year at a time, uh, for the S&P 500 and bonds. And you can see on that page of numbers everything from all bonds to all equities in 10% increments. So if you looked at the column that says 40% equity, that would be very similar to the 40-60 that uh, Wellesley has. And if you looked at the 60% equity, that would be very similar to the risk that uh, Wellington would have. And uh, if you look down towards the bottom of that table, We've pulled out the worst 12-month experience. It didn't have to be uh, during a calendar year. It could be uh, 12 months that started in February or March or April, etc. And there was a 12-month loss with the 40% equity of 18.5%, and there was a loss with the 60% equity of 27.6%. And so we would guess that the, the worst loss exposure you're likely to have with a portfolio of uh, uh, half in Wellesley and half in, in the Wellington would probably be around a 20 to 25% one-year loss. And the third question today, uh, uh, by the way, it was a very long question, but here's the bottom line. They want to know what's the return on investment, R-O-I, if I hire a fiduciary fee-only advisor to manage our account. Now, sometimes the return on investment has to do with peace of mind. Uh, I look at... uh, uh, I look at our garden, um, my wife and I have, well, I just think it's an absolutely beautiful garden, and my wife, I give her all the credit for the look, the design, uh, how she fixed the path uh, down the side hill, etc., it's all very beautiful. Now, I <laughs> I did not do one thing to make that garden beautiful, but and it was not cheap to make that that garden beautiful, but I do know this, that I have had a huge return on that investment, and I cannot certainly put it in dollars and cents. On the other hand, a lot of people, if they're going to have somebody touch their money, they're going to charge to have somebody Touch that money, they want to know they're going to get something from that. And they want, I think they want more than peace of mind. You see, a do-it-yourselfer, and this person has been a do-it-yourselfer, a do-it-yourselfer at some level, they must enjoy taking the responsibility. Sometimes they get a change of heart about that because the size of the portfolio gets so large that all of a sudden it it, it, it feels like if they made a mistake, it could be catastrophic. So if somebody is a do-it-yourselfer, they, above all, want to make sure there is an absolutely a a dollar return on investment. Now, if you think like that, then it is almost impossible to get a return on investment in the fixed income part of the portfolio because there is no magic to the fixed income part of the portfolio. Over the years, uh, and when I was an uh, an advisor, if everything was about the bottom line and adding return for anything that the firm charged for, I'd say, look, if, if that's how you feel, why don't you take your fixed income portion and go over to Vanguard and just buy yourself some good bond funds? Because if somebody's charging you 1% a year to manage your money, There is no way an investment advisor is going to improve that, particularly for somebody who's a savvy do-it-yourselfer. Now, when we look at the Dalbar results, and I don't have them here in my pile of numbers, but I I can remember that one of the things that shocked me was to find out that the individual investor in bonds underperformed the bond funds themselves by almost half of the return of those bond funds. That individual investors, likely not so savvy, uh, just didn't do the right thing at the right time. They allowed somehow market timing to take over. And part of it, with the bonds, I'm sure, was there was a time when people were scared to death that interest rates were going to rise. And for years, people had their money in short-term, or not, not, even, even worse than short-term, they were in money market accounts because they didn't want to take any loss of principle if interest rates went up. And as you now remember, interest rates for a very long time uh, stayed down and, and show if you were in a money market fund, you were making a less, less than a quarter of 1% while you could have been making two or three or 4% in fixed income instruments elsewhere. So I, I think for a savvy do it yourself, that really wants to get in there and take care of the low hanging fruit, the fixed income part of the portfolio, I think is, uh, uh, it's probably difficult for an advisor to to make some real money on that fixed income. But I don't think that's true with, uh, uh, with the equity part of the portfolio. Uh, I do think there are ways, particularly uh, in, if the future looks like the past, if value does better than growth, if uh, small does better than large, my sense is people who work Uh, with an advisor who uses DFA funds, is probably going to end up, they're going to actually get a return on their investment uh, that will, uh, in many cases, I can't say most, but in many cases, it will be more than you would have gotten had you been sitting on your own at Vanguard. But I think there's so much more. Uh, I recently... Uh, sp- spoke with my advisor about the whole process of when to rebalance. And it is a, a much more complex decision-making path than most amateur investors are going to uh, uh, do their best with. Uh, and I think I may have mentioned this on a, on another uh, um, a podcast before, uh, when the, the, the advisor uh, moved money out uh, of a more aggressive portfolio that we have in our portfolio because it had done so well and moved the extra returns over into a more conservative strategy. It turned out that the timing was very, very good, but it's not something that I would have gotten around to doing, I suspect. I think I've said it a hundred times, your advisor does not make you money. Uh, The market makes you money. If your advisor knows the past, and if the future looks somewhat like the past, then that knowledge they've gotten from the past can probably be put to work for you uh, in a way that you might not have done it on your own. Now, I'd like to think for people who really want to do it on their own that between myself and some other people in the industry like Larry Swedro uh, and Jonathan Clements and others that the advice that we uh, have given, the education that we've tried to give uh, will head you in the same direction that that a good advisor but if you're really on the fence, I think the thing that you should do if 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 you've got that that you're coming to that point in your life where you think maybe when I say you're losing it that you that you're finding that solving problems is getting more difficult maybe it's maybe it's when we don't want to drive it at night anymore that that's a clue that uh Uh, that we should consider working with an advisor. And the beauty is this. Most of the people uh, who have saved well during their lives and have built up uh, a decent uh, treasure chest, they have enough that they can find an advisor who will work on this basis, that they will take let the advisor have a portion of the portfolio. Uh, at one point, at the, at the Merriman Company, it was a hundred thousand dollars, and I had lots of accounts I opened with a hundred thousand dollars. Now today it's five hundred thousand, but there are still investment advisors around, I'm sure, who will help with a hundred thousand. But have it be an amount of money. that that is not going to keep you awake at night worrying about whether you're getting a good return on your investment in what you're paying that investment advisor. So if somebody is managing a half a million dollars for you, and let's say they're being paid $5,000 a year, well, you know what you can do? You can certainly ask them to give you some some advice on the rest of the money that they're, uh, th- that you have to manage. Uh, I remember those accounts that I managed $100,000, and they often had over a million. And I always told them what I would do with the other $900,000 they are not letting me manage. And I didn't charge them. Until they decided they wanted to turn that money over to me. So as far as I'm concerned, I was charging them not 1% on a hundred thousand, but I was charging them one-tenth of one percent on a million. Now you may have to hunt around a little bit to find an advisor that's going to work that way. But my view was I was always looking for a client that I could hopefully help for a lifetime. And um, so uh, that return on investment, uh, sometimes it really is about peace of mind. And I don't think that I would have, or my wife and I would have our asset allocation 50-50 stocks and bonds, and I'm almost 75 and she's younger, but at both of our ages, A lot of folks would say, oh, you should only have 30% in fixed income, or maybe at the most 40%. I actually, because I do have an advisor, feel more comfortable having more equities in the portfolio. For my last uh, question, and it's a question I've gotten from a lot of you, uh, I want to address the topic of value versus growth. Uh, I'll be doing um, a, a whole podcast on this topic uh, in the coming weeks. <clears throat> but uh, at this point, what, what, what I want to address is uh, what I would say is a desire for people uh, to have um, some sort of a market timing strategy uh, to determine whether a person should be in value or should be in growth. Yes, yes, it is. It is true that uh, growth has been doing better than value recently and some would say that's uh, not uncommon at the uh, uh, end of a big bull market run that uh, value tends to do better during uh, the tougher periods but i, I want one of two things one I want to address uh, uh, an article that Mark Hulbert has uh, has written but I, I also want to say that, my belief in value over growth as as in terms of what is likely to have the better return is based on 90 years worth of evidence and everybody in the industry says that future performance or i should say past performance is not a guarantee of future performance but the academics do weigh in and say that the Odds are very high that over the long run, value will do better. But if there are going to be long periods uh, that growth does better than value, uh, is there some way to make that judgment and to say, okay, I want to be committed to large, but I want to be committed to large growth when large growth is likely to do better, and I want to be committed to large value when large value is going to do better? Now, that would suggest, and I'm not anti-market timing, as you know, but that would suggest that there is some evidence uh, that would lead us to believe that there are periods where that is true. And uh, if you want to, um, I think you have to have a subscription to the Wall Street Journal, uh, but I can tell you that on July 9th, Monday, July 9th, Uh, Mark Halbert wrote an article. The title is Value Stocks Aren't a Bear Market Cure. And as I mentioned, some people think that that value does better in a bear market. Now part of that is because those value companies in many cases have already been through a bear market of sorts in that they have underperformed uh, the uh, the better performing growth companies. And what Mark says, and I'll quote parts of this article if I might, read part of it, it's the conventional wisdom that growth stocks and value stocks go in and out of favor along with the market cycle. Growth stocks in bull markets, especially in its latter stages, while value takes the lead in bear markets. Mark goes on, he says, as plausible as the pattern appears to be, however, it has held up less than half the time over the past 90 years. This is especially important to keep in mind now, given the widespread concern that the bull market may be coming to an end if it hasn't already. Investors should think twice before betting that value stocks will help protect them from the full brunt of a bear market. I think we've talked about this before. In most bear markets, everything goes down. Now, now when I say everything, not fixed income generally, and there will be a a few uh, sectors that will... uh, will do okay. I think it's really that there's an expectation that value won't fall as fast as, as growth, because the growth has likely gotten way ahead of itself in price. Here's some more from Mark. Uh, Since the 1920s, there has been no consistency in the relative performance of value and growth in either bull or bear markets. In bear markets before 1970, for example, the 50% of stocks nearest the growth end of the spectrum, outperformed the 50% of the value end by an annualized average of 3.8 percentage points. In the bear markets of the subsequent four decades, It was just the opposite, with value beating growth by an annualized average of 10.7 percentage points. That is an amazing (laughs) difference. And, of course, it was easy then for people to conclude that there was this huge advantage to value during bear markets. And then Mark finishes a much longer article here, He says, the investment implication. If your current equity exposure level is higher than you can tolerate during a bear market, then you should reduce that exposure level now rather than hope that a shift to value stocks will lessen your losses. In other words, and, uh, and I think Mark would agree with this. Uh, it is not our attempt to try to encourage you to market time between growth and value. In fact, we don't even recommend market timing between small and large, or U.S. and international. That what we need to do as investors, or what I would like you to do is to figure out in the worst of times how much equity you're willing to have, whether it's because in a bear market, whether it's because value goes down or growth go down or they both go down. The assumption should be that with X exposure to equities, regardless of what you think the future might be in terms of growth and value, you are going to suffer a loss. And from time to time, like 2000 through 2002, uh, the exposure in the portfolio to value and to small and to international almost turned three terrible years into a profit. I mean, within a few percent. It was was an amazing display of non-correlation. They did not go down as they all went maybe down some, but some asset classes held up. The reason that we're in value and small cap is not because we think they're going to go up when growth and uh, large go down. It's because we think over a long period of time that value will outproduce growth. That small will outproduce large. And for most of you, we're not suggesting you not have any large, we're not suggesting you don't have any growth. For most, we want a balance of both. But we want to lean more to the to the value and lean more to the small than what most investors will do. But we don't, I think, want to try to be a market timer and guess. What's going to be best next? And I'll close this uh, podcast. I don't do this very often, but I want to to mention an upcoming podcast, or you can see it as a video, entitled Small Cap Value. What can go wrong? Uh, I think it's probably one of the most important pieces I've done for those who are digging into small-cap value and figuring out how to have that be part of your portfolio. Uh, Hopefully, it'll come out next week, but it may be the week after. But stay tuned, because uh, I do think it's uh, it's an important piece. Thanks for listening.